Well, good morning. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in the fourth week of Advent, which means we are also in the fourth week of our sermon series on the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and this week, hell. So, before I begin, before we get into this weighty topic, I want to make all the same disclaimers that I made a month ago when we started this series which is that we are speaking of things that are unknowable to us, things that Scripture describes mostly in metaphor, things that sincere, earnest, orthodox, Bible-believing Christians have always disagreed about. And there is so much more that I want to be able to say about hell than I could possibly say in a sermon So I just want you to know that if after listening to this or any of these four sermons, if you have lingering doubts or questions or anger or grief or anything that gets stirred up, this is a community where you are allowed to voice those. You can talk to me, you can talk to Katie, you can talk to one another, you can talk to God, you can pray, you can wrestle, but don't keep those quiet. And then finally, I want to say that uh, probably more than any other sermon I've ever preached, I have done a lot of research, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of big theological names over the past really month or so. And so I just kind of want to give them all credit here at the beginning so that I don't footnote endlessly while I'm talking. Um, So thank you to Fleming Rutledge, John Stott, John Calvin, Thomas Aquinas, Alan Lewis, too many church fathers to name, and of course, to the Apostle Paul, to Matthew and John and Peter, and to Jesus himself. This is definitely the most unoriginal sermon that I will ever preach, and yet I think some of what you hear might sound a little new to you because somehow these voices are not often the loudest ones that we hear talking about hell. So... Let's talk about hell. To speak about hell is to speak about the reality of evil in the world. And we may not know now or 15 minutes from now quite what to think about hell, but we know with certainty that evil exists in the world. And we know that evil has to one day be destroyed or there is no justice in God. So that's where we'll start. A couple months ago, I read the transcripts of the 9-11 calls made from inside the school in Uvalde, Texas. I don't quite know why I did this and why I persisted, but it really rattled me. And I remember saying to Trent, my husband, this is the worst thing I've ever read. But it actually wasn't. Because I've also been to the Children's Genocide Memorial in Rwanda, My daughter is actually named for a little girl who was killed in that genocide in 94. And I've also been to the killing fields in Cambodia, where a quarter of that country was exterminated under Pol Pot in the late 70s. The earth on those fields is now lumpy. It's taken on the shape of these mass graves. And there are still bits of bone and fabrics and pieces of clothing, people's belongings that rise to the surface every time it rains there. And there are these massive trees there. 
that were once these implements of torture for the youngest people there. They used to hang speakers from the branches of these trees and play music, blaring revolutionary music day and night just to cover the sounds of the cries. There's really no worst thing I've ever read or seen or heard. There's no end to these worst things. There is just so much evil in the world. And so often, it's the innocents and the vulnerable who suffer at the hands of the powerful. And any exploration of hell has to begin here, in the reality of horrific evil, and in our own weakness and our inability to overcome it. The New Testament talks about evil as more than just kind of generic badness or bad behavior. Evil is a realm. It has a domain, a dominion, an enemy empire, and we call this realm hell. And this evil realm is ruled by an evil power, an evil intelligence, personified in different places in Scripture as Satan, as Beelzebul, as the devil, the prince of demons, sometimes as death and Hades itself. And we humans and our institutions, we are so easily exploited and manipulated and wooed by this evil intelligence. Whether we are just passively complicit in evil and turn a blind eye and do nothing, or whether we actively participate in it, or whether we let it take hold of us and give in to it, we all have this capacity for evil. And so we all inflict suffering on the world, suffering that ripples out through generations, suffering that maligns the image of God in other people, suffering that destroys God's creation. And someday all of this participation in evil will face the judgment of God. Someday all the powers of Satan, evil, death, will face the judgment of God, and they will be overthrown. Hell is God's final verdict on human evil. And we hear this verdict in the passage that we just read from the gospel, where Jesus is gathering and judging all people and separating them for eternity. Those who were merciful to the vulnerable, to the innocent, to the needy, they hear these words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And those who showed no mercy to the vulnerable, Jesus says, You who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And this passage tells us a few things about hell. For one, it tells us that hell is part of the great reversal of God's kingdom, where the last will become first and the first will become last, where the innocent and the vulnerable and the sufferers of this life, the poor, the hungry, the immigrant, the prisoner, will one day be vindicated by a God who sees them, a God of justice. It also tells us that hell is a state of cursedness. Hell is a departure from God. You who are accursed, depart from me. Hell is that domain where God is not. 
hell is this state of God forsakenness. It also tells us hell was not prepared for humans, but for the devil and his angels. Hell was prepared for that evil intelligence and the agents of its realm. The earlier verses said that God prepared a kingdom for his people from before the foundation of the world, but God prepared destruction for the devil and his angels, a final end to the rule of evil. And yet, it seems that some people will, in the end, be consigned to that destruction that was never intended for them. We hear similar imagery in Revelation 20, where God throws the devil, the false prophet, the beast, death itself, and Hades itself into this lake of fire, and people whose names are not in the book of life. So, when we think about hell, we have to face this awful reality that Jesus speaks of hell as a real possible destination for some people. That hell is a departure from the presence of God and a punishment for evil. And here and in other passages in the gospel, Jesus uses language to describe hell, language of fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth, the destruction of body and soul, outer darkness. And we can't get around this. But we don't need to like it. We have permission to dislike and feel uncomfortable and even hate the idea of hell. Because if hell is the domain of evil and death, if hell is the realm from which all human suffering is emanating out in the world, if hell is God-forsakenness itself, then hell is worthy of our strongest hatred. And if hell will be a place of weeping, then we ought to begin weeping now at the very thought of it. We can take our cues from Jesus who wept at the thought of the destruction of Jerusalem. We can take our cues from the Apostle Paul who wept over the judgment of his people and says in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters. If the idea of hell doesn't cause us anguish and weeping, then we need to examine ourselves. We need to ask whether the fruit of compassion and love is really growing in us. So the reality of hell is really clear in Scripture. What is a lot less clear is the nature of hell. What is hell like? And I want to spend just a minute addressing a few different ideas of what hell is like. There is one idea that is a kind of universalism that concludes there simply cannot be a hell because God is love, because God is merciful. But unfortunately, Scripture doesn't really allow us that conclusion. Human evil and the suffering that it has wrought on the earth will one day be judged and punished in hell. The innocent will one day be vindicated. The powerful will one day be brought low. Now, at the last, we may find that hell, in the end, was redemptive 
maybe we will find at the end that hell is actually emptied. But we cannot say, in light of Scripture, that hell simply isn't. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum is this view of hell as a place where people are tortured continuously, consciously, forever. Where they feel the pain of being burned alive for all eternity without ever being destroyed. It takes that fire of Jesus' words in the gospel and John's words in Revelation, literally. And this has been more or less the dominant view in most of Western Christianity for most of church history. But it's never been without its problems. It's never been without its dissenting voices, well within the bounds of Christian belief. And in recent years, one of those dissenting voices has been the great Anglican theologian John Stott, who said, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable, and I don't understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. And I know some of us have cracked under that strain. And so I want to just briefly address, not in depth, but briefly address some of the problems with this view that have been risen throughout Christian history. The first and the most difficult problem is actually scripture itself. It's the language and the imagery used for hell. The vast majority of language for hell in the Bible is not language of torment. It's language of destruction. Hell is the end of life, the final separation from the living God, the destruction of body and soul. And that image of fire in Scripture almost always simply means to destroy, to burn up what cannot and should not endure. Fire is very rarely an image of torture and torment. And there is really nothing in Scripture that suggests that the fire in Revelation or in Jesus' words ought to be taken literally. And in fact, there is a lot to suggest that it is better taken metaphorically alongside so many other metaphors for the four last things. And in fact, literal fire creates some problems for us interpretive-wise because a literal fire can't coexist with some of the other literal ideas of hell. There cannot be a literal fire and a literal darkness. Another problem with this view is the way it calls God's nature, his character, into question. The God of Scripture is not cruel. He is not capricious. He is not unjust. An unceasing torment for the sins of finite people seems disproportionate. It seems to call God's justice and mercy into question. And then finally, there is this problem of the whole arc of Scripture. All of Scripture is telling this story that in the end, God will reign and not Satan. In the end, there will be one ruler of all the cosmos, not two. In the end, the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea, and God will be God, will be all in all. And the theologian Fleming Rutledge says that in this final triumph of God, 
There cannot be a permanent pocket of evil, a permanent realm of resistance to God alongside the kingdom of God. Hell must finally and completely be obliterated and pass out of memory. Whether this means the final redemption of Pol Pot or the final annihilation of Pol Pot, we cannot say. But we can say for sure that he shall reign forever and ever. And on that, scripture is very clear. And at that we cry, come, Lord Jesus, come and set the world right. And on what is less clear, the nature of hell, the duration of hell, we are called to weep and to wrestle and ultimately to do the only thing that we can do, to trust the goodness and the mercy and the justice of the God who is revealed to us in Jesus. And that brings me to my last point, which I think is the most important thing that can be said about hell, which is that whatever hell is, Jesus has been there. Passages like today's from 1 Peter, passages in Ephesians and in Romans strongly suggest Jesus' descent to hell. The earliest Christians universally believed this, the Apostles' Creed that we recite at every baptism claims this and affirms this, and all the great theologians from the early church through the Reformation to now have found this essential. If hell is a state of cursedness and God-forsakenness and departure from God's presence, then Jesus has been through hell. Scripture tells us Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus became sin for us. On the cross, we hear Jesus cry out his state of God-forsakenness in that psalm that we read a few minutes ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus' death and descent to hell, God somehow went where God is not. God was separate from God while remaining yet God. There's a theologian named Alan Lewis who wrote kind of his masterpiece, this theology of Jesus' time in the tomb while he himself was dying of cancer. It's beautiful. And he writes that the descent of Jesus forces us to think at deeper levels yet of who God is and how God works, present and absent, and absent where most present, alive in death, and dead when most creative and life-giving. This is all beyond our comprehension, but it speaks to Jesus' utter solidarity with our human condition, with the depths of our suffering, the depths of our experience of God's absence, and the depths of death and evil and hell. And it's there in those depths that Jesus pronounces God's verdict on this realm of evil and death. Its power is being overcome by the resurrection of the crucified God. Well, a few minutes ago, I talked about those Cambodian killing fields. And when I was there, I took a picture of this little sapling that had been planted um, planted by Buddhist monks, and it had a little plaque on it that said, A Tree of Hope and Peace. 
It was just a, a symbolic gesture. And this little sapling was kind of sickly. It had not grown very well. It looked so flimsy and, frankly, meaningless next to these monstrous trees of torture nearby. But when we look to the cross of Jesus, we see a real tree of hope and peace. Our only hope for hope and peace in this life and in the next. We see on the cross Emmanuel, God so completely with us, as Isaiah prophesied this morning. We see this crucified God who goes with humanity to the place he is not, to death and cursedness, and the deepest hell, to the realm of evil and God-forsakenness, in order to destroy it forever. The most important thing that we could say about hell is that Jesus went there in our place and defeated it. Let's pray. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, be with us, ransom and deliver us, and set the world right. Amen.